I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. Our guest on this episode of The Sound of Success is Brett McKenzie. Brett is best known as one half of the music and comedy duo Flight of the Concords, and along with his partner in crime, Jermaine Clement, created the BBC radio series and the HBO television series of the same name. The guys have continued their partnership in a number of arenas, including live tours and their most recent comedy special, Life in London, released in 2018. On the solo tip, Brett has worked extensively as a music supervisor and songwriter in film and television, most notably in the last two Muppets movies, and in fact won an Academy Award for Best Original Song for Man or Muppet for the 2011 The Muppets movie. He's also written songs for The Simpsons. If you haven't seen the Morrissey-inspired episode Panic on the Streets of Springfield from last year, please do yourself a favor and seek it out. He's also played a couple of elves in the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit trilogies, and as he joins us today, he's readying his debut album, Songs Without Jokes. Brett, great to connect, and thanks for joining me. Great to be here. Hey, Nick, what a, what a lovely intro. You and I, I, I just wanted to share this with our audience. We met by accident about a dozen years ago in a studio in Pasadena where a mate of mine, Sid Kosler, was recording an album with his band Goldspot. And you were in the same space doing posts on the Flight of the Concord show. Sid has also gone on to become very successful in television and film composing with shows like This Is Us. I'm thinking there must have been something in the water at that studio. Yeah, the, the East LA, the East LA vibe. Yeah. <laughs> it was quite industrial out there. It was good. It was something about those San Gabriel mountains and the, and the power pylons. That was the vibe. It really was. You know, I want to talk to you about the new album and we'll get to our music questions as well. But before we do, maybe you could tell us a little bit uh, about how you got your start. I know born and raised in Wellington. What kind of kid were you? Was there music around the house? Yeah, I grew up uh, with an unusual combination of parents. My mother uh, is a ballet teacher and my father is a horse trainer um, slash lawyer slash musical theater um, singer. <laughs> so... <laughs> There was there was a lot going on, and uh, and I, I'm from Wellington, which is a really cool little city in New Zealand. That I guess geographically it's similar to San Francisco, um, but in some ways I feel it's like it's got a bit of a within New Zealand, which is fairly rural and fairly quiet. Wellington is kind of the arts creative sort of center, and I grew up in the middle of it with my mom teaching ballet and running a contemporary dance company. So I grew up in the middle of the arts world. And as a kid, I was ushering at theaters, helping out my mom's shows and her friends' mm. shows. And I grew up backstage in theaters and touring with shows, all dance shows. But, you know, interestingly, dance, contemporary dance always has pretty interesting music accompanying it because it's pretty, uh, it's a pretty open space for music. It's really freeing for composers. And um, so, yeah, I grew up with that sort of environment. Then I went to university and I... That's where I sort of made my friendships with um, people who I've continued to create with. That's where I met Jermaine Clement, you know, from Concords and um, Taika Waititi. He was at university with me and we all did shows, comedy theater shows together. And at the same time as that, I was playing in bands. Like half my friends were theater people, half my friends were musicians. And we played in, um, as a teenager, I was really into James Brown and Leonard Cohen. They were probably my two big influences and I remember walking around the school trying to sing Leonard Cohen um but my voice hadn't broken so it was really hard <laughs> to get it was a really it was a really unimpressive Leonard Cohen sound <laughs> a little difficult to do uh 
Leonard Cohen in a, in a higher yeah. pitched voice, I would imagine. Yeah, it was, t- it was tough. But yeah, that was my that was kind of the, the forming of the music. You know, that was what I got into. And and then I started playing in bands. You know, as a teenager, I started off as a drummer at school, and I spent a lot of time trying to learn James Brown drum beats, which was awesome fun. And and kind of my a lot of our friends in that group became jazz musicians. Right. They went and studied jazz. It was kind of a cool little jazz uh, university in Wellington. I did. I went to some more theater direction, but continued playing jazz on drums with my friends who were getting really good at, at shredding on guitars. Right. And, and, um, and then at the same time doing theater, so it was sort of, sort of a mixture it was theater and music all happening simultaneously. You know, that was, that was quite a fast paced description of my childhood. So when, when you say theater, obviously you were talking about you, your mom doing the uh, contemporary dance in theaters. Yeah. When you say you were doing theater, what, what were you doing? Were you acting? Yeah. So I was acting and devising. At the time, there was this cool little local community theater called Bats, where you could put on any show you wanted, and they just took 10% of the door. So it didn't really matter if no one came, because <laughs> you didn't, we'd all just put on shows all the time. <laughs> Everyone right. was, if you had any idea, you put on a show, and then you, went, you acted in other people's shows. And they weren't plays that were written. They were devised comedies. So kind of sketchy sketch-based or character-based or experience-based. Yeah, really, really playful time. And that's where Jermaine and I started making comedy shows. And Concords just came out of that. We were flatting together and we were sick of not getting cast and like in paid uh, TV and film jobs. Everyone would go to the same auditions. Um, and then, I mean, there's only really three shows in New Zealand. There was like a you know, a hospital drama that everyone, we basically always audition for nurses or doctors and never get cast. Right. And then, um, yeah, that's when we started playing guitar around the flat and we started writing funny songs just to amuse ourselves. And then that led to playing at a comedy club and it just kept on evolving, you know, step by step. We played every Thursday and we'd write a new song each week and then eventually we had 10 songs and, and that we started trying a comedy festival and, and it evolved from there. But it was interesting because it was, it was, um, it was sort of accidental in many ways because we were just, it was something that we could do that didn't require many people and was quite easy to travel with. So it was just the two of us and just two guitars. So it was quite, whereas some of the theater shows, um, which were probably more successful at the time had, you know, seven or eight people in them and were difficult to travel with, you know. Spinning it back to the music just for a minute. Yeah. You mentioned jazz as, as being something that, uh, that you wanted to play. What other music were you listening to as a, as a teenager? James Brown, clearly, but, but what else was uh, in, your, in your listening pile? Jane's Addiction, uh, the Pixies. I was really into that music as well as funk. And then after school years, you know, 17, 18, what happened in Wellington was there was a group of musicians who got into reggae and dub and they went on to become fat freddy's drop which are really well-known new zealand band yep but before fat freddy's drop formed um dj moo would dj on the local radio station and they had you know sound system nights and we'd all go along to that and we all got really into dub and reggae uh completely influenced by those those guys those djs there was a mm. handful of DJs who played that music um so then from that which is really amazing what happened from that because wellington became the center of reggae and dub music within New Zealand. And mm. just to give listeners a bit of context, 
reggae in New Zealand is kind of what rock music or country music is in the States. It's really omnipresent, lots of bands. Um, that's really the backdrop of summer in New Zealand. Interesting. So yeah. I felt like once I came, once I worked in out Los Angeles, I got a different context of reggae where it was not so, it was more specific. Mm. Or in New Zealand, it was really, everyone was listening to reggae. It was, you know, it was very, very common. But the dub, the specialty of dub, that was what Mo and those guys kind of brought in. And out of that, Fat Freddy's Drop formed. And out of that, another band that I was in called The Black Seeds, which was a reggae kind of funk band, which really makes sense when you hear about me talking about James Brown and reggae and dub music. And we, that was a seven or eight piece band that became really popular in New Zealand and Australia. And... We toured a lot, and for me, I was like tag teaming. I was like, I'd do these reggae outdoor festival gigs with this big band playing to like 5,000 people, mm. party, party music, you know, people dancing, summer festivals in the mountains and the, in the coast of New Zealand. And then I'd jump on a plane and fly to Melbourne and play dungy comedy festivals. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of my, that was my life for a few years there. Interesting that they were both sort of running simultaneously for a while, and then uh, they synced up at some point, I, I guess, and when Flight of the Concords really became a, a musical group as well with the TV shows and everything. Be before we go any further, though, I just want to ask you if you can give us a distinction for, for our listeners between Auckland and Wellington. I'll be honest with you, I, I never made it to New Zealand. I lived in Australia for a while in the 80s. What? What? Sad. <laughs> Sad. <laughs> it's over. It's over. I'm out of here. <laughs> I can tell you the difference between between Sydney and and Melbourne, or you know Adelaide, or Brisbane, or whatever. But uh, I have no idea. So so take us through that. Sure. Well, Auckland and Wellington are both on the North Island, and the North Island has most of the people in New mm. Zealand. Um, Auckland is the big city. All the corporate offices. It's a little more spread out. It's uh, so you drive everywhere. Um, it's a little harder to connect socially. My friends too have moved there from Wellington. It's a city where you, it's a little like Los Angeles, where you see people when you organize to meet them, you mm. plan to meet someone. And Wellington is geographically very uh, small and contained by these hills and a harbor. So you have to, you walk everywhere and you bump into people. So Wellingtonians don't really make plans to, to meet. You just go out. And you just you go out and find people. You see people. So my whole this was, it, it became a joke that like you couldn't walk down the main street. It's called Cuba Street, where all the cool bars and cafes and stuff were. And for a while there, everyone, you wouldn't take that street if you had to get anything done because you would see too many people you knew. Right. <laughs> so Literally. that's kind of the, that's the, I feel like that's the heart of the, the difference. So Wellington doesn't have those corporate offices. Um, what it does have is government. It's where the, the, the government buildings are and all the government offices are. So that, there's a lot of government workers. Um, that's probably the big industry. Yeah. We talk about Flight of the Concords, obviously, and the success you guys had off of the uh, TV show and then touring. I I've, I've seen you guys do it live as well. How did you sort of segue from that into working with Muppets? How did you get involved with Disney? Sure. Yeah. Well, we were so mad, lucky with Concords, how we got picked up and HBO and it just kept on blossoming. And one of the people we worked with, one of the key players in the TV development was James Bobin, who's a great TV director, film director. And he came on um, to help Jermaine and I figure out what Flight of the Concords would be as a TV show. So we'd done these festivals. HBO used to run a comedy festival in Aspen. 
we played the Montreal Festival, the Edinburgh Festival for a few years in a row. And at those festivals, uh, TV executives come along and go, oh, that's interesting. Or they see something that's getting popular and they're like, oh, we'd like to talk to you about making a TV show. But they couldn't figure out what we were as a TV show. You know, mm. these two guys singing songs, it wasn't obvious. There was Tenacious D was one reference point. They had a few, they had a, uh, some TV shows they made and, um, but it was how to get out songs and turn them into narrative and create what was the half hour narrative comedy show. Mm. And that's really with James Bobin. He kind of cracked that and he'd made Ali G that TV show, mm -hmm. the early TV show, which was a huge success. And yeah, he came on. So it was Jermaine, James and I were sat there and we wrote all the scripts and figured out what the show was. And then after Concords, James went on to direct films and then he asked me to write songs for his films. So that's how I started working for Disney. And in fact, interestingly, my first meeting at Disney, they, they were very suspicious about me doing the music for their Muppets films because James had told them he wanted me to work with them. But, you know, I guess it's scary for a studio to take a risk with someone who, you know, hasn't done a studio movie before. Sure. And I was blindly confident. I was like, ah, oh, I got this covered. I know what Kermit sounds like. I can, you know, this is going to be fun. Um, and they really didn't trust me. And at first my job was to listen to other people's songs right. and, and help them make them better or choose which songs were going to be used. I guess that was more the music supervisor role. Got it. Technically in a movie. But then it became quite apparent that I could just write some songs that were going to be better because um, I could see how these demos, the songs coming in, weren't particularly funny and um, had a sort of Disney sound, which at the time was what I would describe as sort of awful teen poppy kind of chintzy kind of mainstream stuff just terrible sounding really <laughs> and james bobin the director really wanted this to sound like the early muppets 70s stuff he wanted right. that paul williams sound that you know and um tack pianos and banjos and and that was what i loved about i love all that old music so i then met up with um yeah chris caswell who worked on some of the original music with paul williams and arranged a lot of that early stuff and yeah we we he put together the studio band and we with players like jim cox who's an amazing los angeles piano player he he spent years playing at disneyland like 10 years playing that ragtime stride piano and um which is kind of you know rolf the rolf the dog kind of sound yeah. anyway we, we got together this incredible band and then that was how that came together but interestingly the the song that i was successful with which was man or muppet which was a, a ballad um, between the main character and a Muppet version of himself, an existential ballad, which was really fun. And, and I went for this sort of really high drama song right up until the till production. They had this other song they wanted to use instead. And so they made me produce both songs mm. and, and, and then, and sort of shoot them out at each other to see which one would make it. They really didn't trust me. But then after they got an Oscar, they were much more confident. They would let me do whatever I wanted. Tell, tell me a little bit about that Simpsons episode that, that I mentioned. Yeah, the Simpsons, while I was living in LA working on Concords, I became friends with uh, some of the Simpsons writers, uh, Tim Long as one of them, and he contacted me. This is during COVID more recently, mm. and he was writing this episode about a Morrissey-type character, and I was wondering if I could write some songs. And right. I was, you know, yeah, always, always keen to do that kind of thing. It sounds fun. And... Yeah, so we I wrote a few songs and I think two of them two of them made it through the episode and, and Benedict Cumberbatch played um 
Quilby, yeah, the Morrissey yeah. character. Yeah. It was a great, really fun Zoom session with him. This is deep in lockdown COVID, you know, I'm just at home taking the kids to the park for a walk. And then at 2 a.m. I'm on the Zoom with Benedict <laughs> Cumberbatch in London. So fun, so fun. Um, taking the piss out of Morrissey. Oh, man, it was really great fun. He was Benedict, I don't know him, but he was so, so professional and really worked hard to... Uh, get his Morrissey, Morrissey sound. And I think he nailed it. He nailed it in, the, in the, his vocal take. And then it came out and um, we were all really happy. Sometimes you do a song and it just, it kind of clicks and you're like, that sounds good. And it popped and, and, he, and Benedict did a good job on the vocal and the video came together really well. And I was really happy with the whole thing. And Tim was just thrilled. And, and then it came out and it, it kind of blew up for a couple of days because Morrissey was outraged and really offended yeah. by it. And, <laughs> There's one, one of my favorite images in the episode is where Mar the character, Quilby, is shooting a, a sausage cannon into the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, really, really fun 2020 job here. Yeah, that was a fun episode that I actually saw recently. My, my, myself, my, my girlfriend told me I had to see it. It really holds up. I recommend it. I mean, Tim was a very funny writer and, and the Benedict being this Morrissey character is pretty good. One of the highlights for that is you. The best thing about writing for The Simpsons is when you get one of the characters from The Simpsons to sing on the song. Right. So the Marcy bit sounded good. I was like, oh, yeah, it sounds like Marcy. And then suddenly Lisa comes in and sings a little line. Right. For me, that's so exciting because you're hearing a song that I've written with Lisa Simpsons to <laughs> It sounds like the real deal then. Yes. You know? so, so that was one of the projects you, you did during COVID. I was going to say lockdown. You guys didn't have as much lockdown as the rest of us, obviously, because New Zealand got a, got a handle on this, but you're still working with the rest of the world that is, that is in lockdown. And I'm wondering, is that where the, the idea of doing a solo record came about? And if I've got that wrong, tell, tell me how it did come about. The solo record started just before um, COVID, actually 2019. And mm. it came from a session I was doing for a film um, for James Bowman, another film. And um, I once again put together this band of killer LA session musicians, um, most of them in their 60s and 70s, who do a lot of the film um, film work in LA. And one of the, the bass players, a guy called uh, Leland Sklar, who you will have heard of, a mm -hmm. music fan who know him, legendary bass player. And I was, I was talking to him as we were in between recording and I was saying how I thought it would be fun to do some music that's not for a movie that is, and is not for anything other than just to exist as music, uh, which for me was kind of unusual because I'd spent so many years now writing for TV, writing for film, or writing comedy songs that are for a mm. comedy club and really have specific jobs to do, whether it's to make people laugh or they advance a story or they capture a character's feelings or they set up a finale, you know, all these jobs that songs and films have to do. And I said to him, yeah, it would be fun to do some music that's just, just, for, just literally for, for fun and, and for music's sake. And he said, oh, I'm, I'm keen. That sounds great. And it was, it was funny because I'd sort of, I mean, it had been floating around the back of my mind. And then the other musicians who were there, um, a great guitar player called Dean Parks, who you would have come across and plays on, played on everything. And, and he said, oh, I'm keen. That sounds great. And uh, again, Chris Caswell, the great arranger who I've been working with, he was keen. And so it gave me this boost of, a, of uh, confidence in a way. And um, I thought, damn, I gotta, I gotta do this. These guys are keen, they're amazing players. And my longtime collaborator, uh, music producer, Mickey Petralia, who is uh, from Pasadena, 
who did all the Concord stuff, did all the film stuff with me, he was into it. And so we embarked on this mission to try and assemble, you know, a dozen songs uh, in between doing other jobs and line up a date. We'd get the session band together and smash out a record. And I, I remember we, we went into the studio in 2019 and we recorded at a place called United Recording Studio, which previously was Ocean Way. Beautiful old studio. That's one of the things I love about Los Angeles is those mm. old... Old school studios. Yeah, there's still a couple left. I love, I love it. I just love it. And um, John Bryan was in Studio B. We were in Studio A, the two rooms. And they have, well, what's beautiful about these spaces is you cross paths with other musicians who are working there. And um, I said to John Bryan, who I knew from the old Lago, that's an old club in LA. I said, oh, I'm, I'm recording an album. Yeah, I'm doing it in four days. He just started laughing at me. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's right. We're going to do it in four days. It's going to be so fast. <laughs> and then... Yeah, two and a half years later, it's coming out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's how that's how it that's how it started, and we we tracked it all, and then COVID kind of hit, and it sort of slowed down, and I don't know, like for everyone, a, a year seemed to disappear. I'm not sure what happened in that year, but there was a bit of mixing and a bit of remote recording, and then we did a remote session, and I'd record vocals in New Zealand, um, and then send them to Mickey who was in LA, and we'd, it was a pretty slow and meandering process just because of the nature of lockdowns and sure. what's happening in the world here. You're about to go out on tour with this record as well, right? When when it comes out, uh, I should point out that the album is called Songs Without Jokes, appropriately enough. Are you looking forward to getting out on the road again? Uh, but obviously a little bit differently than you have done in the past. Yeah, it is going to be different. I'm excited and I guess slightly terrified. Having spent so long at home, I don't know if yeah. it's, I don't know if everyone's feeling like this, but I've settled into such a sort of routine of like Zooms and songwriting and taking my kids to school. And, and um, I'm, I'm excited about getting out and performing live and connecting with people again. Part of, part of the joy of it was around last year, I started rehearsing a band and I realized I've been spending way too much time by myself in my studio. And then actually being in a room with other people was so fun. And all the musicians, I've put together a band of seven uh, players from Wellington mm. and they were, everyone was so excited to be in the same room playing music because uh, they'd all been at home for so long. And so I'm kind of excited about that, bringing that energy into theaters and then bringing people together because in New Zealand, we've had a few shows, but we haven't had a lot of shows. I know the States has got more shows happening, but it's still a bit of a feeling of getting back and getting back into that feeling of being in a group and having an experience. I'm kind of psyched about that. Yeah. Yeah. I actually went out to, uh, to, to my first show, I don't know, maybe a couple of months ago, six weeks ago now. And, uh, it was really weird going to a show for the first time after, after all those years. I'm fortunate that it was uh, Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. So it was kind of like going to church, but, um, yeah, yeah. A, a, a little strange being out and about again, but at least in the States, it, I don't know, I think, I mean, this is a weird place, obviously, as you know, but it, it, it seems like the States is just back to, back to normal. Now everybody's like, what the hell? If you die, you die. Yeah. I know. I was thinking about what, one thing I love about crowds and the group is when you get the, when you get the audience to sing together. I love that feeling that everyone has in the audience, but then I thought, oh, you can't really do that. That's not so COVID. That's not so, so COVID friendly. So I was thinking maybe get the audience to hum along, which would minimize the, the spread. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm excited. It's going to be different though. I mean, it's a music show. Like I'm, it's a band, it's a full music. I mean, I'm sure it'll be funny in some ways, but, um, 
the songs are really, I was not trying to write comedy. I'm trying to write, I was, right. I was writing songs that are not comedy songs as a, as a change for me. Um, and so they're not, they're not really full of, they're not full of jokes and, um, but it'll hopefully be a cool music experience for the, for the audience. You sent me uh, an advance of the album and I listened to it a, a little earlier on today before we made this connect. Um, and I really enjoyed it. First of all, hey. the first song on, on the album is, is called this world. And it's probably a little bit different from the rest of the songs on, on the album. It's very much an observation on the moment we're living in climate change in particular. How did, how did that song in particular come about and tell us why you felt it was important to, to write a song like that. I think a lot of the songs were written in the evenings after I'd be reading the guardian too much and becoming depressed with, I mean, climate change is big is obviously just a very heavy issue, but you know, I was trying to write a song that addressed it, uh, because it just feels like it needs to be constantly addressed. And, and, um, yeah, it ended up being a kind of Randy newman kind of piano-y uplifting song about, uh, climate change, this world being broken. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. I'm going to play it on the radio. <laughs> cool. <laughs> um, oh, the one other cool thing about that was the, um, I connected with the Preservation Hall Jazz Band and Ben Jaffe did the, the horns on that. There's a couple of songs on the album that have these really wild New Orleans uh, horn parts. Yeah. Yeah. I, I found it, and if you don't mind me saying this, very much a sort of mix of uh, that sort of Dixie jazz sound with a little Randy Newman and a little Steely Dan kind of thrown in, dare, dare I say. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that. I love that. I love Steely Dan and the guitar player, Dean Parks, he played in Steely Dan. So it was quite fun in the studio when I said to him, oh, can you do a solo kind of like with that Steely Dan sound? Say no more. And he was like, I got that cover, mate. I got <laughs> Let's jump into these music questions. What is your first musical memory? Oh, one of my first musical memories is driving in, the, in a horse truck with my dad and he would sing a song called 16 Tons by... I didn't know who it was by at the time, but it's by a guy called, let's look it up. Uh, he goes, I was born one morning when the sun didn't shine. I picked up my shovel and I walked to the mine. I loaded 16 ton, a number nine, cold right, and right, right. I know it, yeah. Ford, is that? I love that song. So weirdly, that is like a very early memory of music, you wow. know? Yeah. And I love the lyrics like, if the right one don't get you, then the left one will. Little, yeah, I love that. Yeah, so that's probably one of my early, early uh, music memories. That's a good one. What was the first music you bought with your own money? The first um, music I bought was Breakdancing Volume 2. Uh, it was, uh, I think it was from a film or it was a soundtrack collection of 80s breakdancing music. And I was so into breakdancing that at my... I guess I was probably about 10 at my birthday party. I forced all my friends to have a breakdancing competition uh, <laughs> as one of the birthday party games. Nice. There's a lot of, a lot of vocoder, you know, a lot of breakdancing, moving <laughs> to body. Yeah, all that stuff, yeah. What about, what about live music? What was the first concert you went to without uh, a parent or adult supervision? The first concert I went to without my parents that really stuck in my mind is a band called Supergroove which is a New Zealand band that you probably haven't heard of. Um, from that band came a guy called Shea Fu, who became pretty famous again in New Zealand. Uh, but Supergroove was an awesome live funk rap kind of soul group with a really dynamic live show where the guitarist will be standing on the speaker, killing it, and the crowd yeah. is just 
ecstatic, blowing up, dancing, jumping around. And I guess I was about 16. And I was one of those kids who looked like he was 12, like I was 12 when I was 16. I was very, right. very small. I was a very small young man. And, um, but I had this theory that if I wore my leather jacket, I looked 20. And that was how, and I had my brother's fake ID. So that's how I got into those shows. Yeah. Say no more. What was the yeah. feeling? Do you remember the, the feeling that, you know, how, how it impacted your, your body, for example, being in a crowd like that with music, as you said, the guys are wailing on guitars on top of stacks of amplifiers and, you know, all that rock stuff. It was completely exhilarating, partly because we were underage, but me and my friends were obsessed with this music. It felt alternative. It felt kind of edgy. It was in a small little bar that it was, and we were out of our depth, but thought we were so cool. And, um, well, we were really cool. <laughs> and the feeling was just the energy of the music, man, the crowd is just jumping up and down, dancing. And the, there were saxophones and horns and they, the band were really tight. I mean, really great live band who were just smashing it. And it was just as they were, the band were just beginning to rise. You know, they were, they were, they were exploding, but in a kind of underground way. So it had a very dynamic energy to the, the crowd because we felt like we were discovering. And yeah, it was really, I can, it was an amazing, sweaty uh, feeling. Yeah. What do you, what do you listen to when you want to dance? When I want to dance, I tend to listen to James Brown funk music, or I listen to, um, reggae, but sort of, you know, disco up-tempo reggae, you know, soul reggae that's got kind of, yeah, that sort of up-tempo reggae. What do you listen to when you're feeling sad? I was thinking about this when I read this question, I thought, well, I don't think I listen to music so much when I'm sad. I think I just turn it off and then. Maybe that's when I play the piano. Right. And then I wait, then I wait till I cheer up and put some music on. <laughs> wait till it goes away. Yeah. Do you have a, a favorite music video and why? Oh yeah. I love the one. Uh, my favorite music video is definitely the one where Christopher Walken dances. And I think it's Spike Jones. Oh, the fat boy slim thing. Yeah. Slim video. And I just, I remember the moment when I saw that and they were kind of Michelle Gondry and Spike Jones were just making really cool music videos for a while there in the early 2000s. Yeah. And uh, yeah, back when you bought DVDs, you know, I remember buying a DVD of Spike Jones music videos. Mm. And maybe it's partly because I grew up with, with dance in my family, but seeing Christopher Walken suddenly break out just such glorious dance moves and, and so unexpected. I guess it's that joy of seeing someone unexpected dancing. That was something that we always loved in concourses as well. Do you have a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with, with our listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, I th I've got a few. John Prine is someone I've recently discovered who uh, a lot of people will already know, but I, I feel like I'd heard his name and people said, oh, he's a great songwriter and I'd never kind of broken in. Mm. But yeah, in the, the last year, I've been listening to a lot of John Prine and he's so funny and playful and it's just a joy so i really encourage people to, to dig a bit deeper yeah because so it can be a bit intimidating because there's so many songs but um the speed of loneliness i think it's called the, yeah i think that's the name that's, that's a beautiful song but there's also a lot of really playful ones um that's the way the world goes around i think is the name of it anyway yeah there's a couple of recommendations there do you have a, a band or an artist that you love but you think they probably didn't get the break they should have. There's a band in New Zealand called the Phoenix Foundation, uh, who you might have come across, and they write music for films a lot now, uh, for Taika Waititi's films. You know, people might have come across those. 
they do really cool synth guitar indie music. And I remember when um, 10 years ago or something, I I just presumed they were going to become massive. I loved all their music, beautiful songs, great songwriters, kind of in the Wilco kind of vein of mm-hmm. sound. And I think what happened was, um, I don't know what happened exactly, but that sort of indie rock sound became, America became saturated with that music a little bit. And um, it was hard for them to break through when there were so many other bands doing it. But yeah, beautiful songwriters. And, and I'm, 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 to this day, it still bamboozles me why they're not massively successful. Yeah. Do you have a, a band or an artist that you would describe as a, a guilty pleasure? And you, you have to tell us, obviously, who it is. Um, I think my guilty pleasure is was inspired by a keyboard player called Drew Erickson, who, who plays on the record with, with me. And he... Um, he started collecting songs that are about food. And uh, when you start doing this, you come across, once you're out of genre and you're based on subjects, you can really get into some pretty interesting places. And uh, James Taylor has a song called Chili Dog, which is uh, something about this song. I just, I really enjoy it. Really enjoy Chili Dog. Highly recommend people check out James Taylor's Chili Dog. <laughs> And, and we, we always wrap up with the same question, which is, how are you feeling right now? I'm feeling great. It's cool to talk to you, Nick. Yeah, I've had a good day. And I feel like I'm coming out of some sort of COVID New Zealand hibernation, and I'm just kind of getting excited about reconnecting with the world. Well, I'm glad you're re-entering through, uh, through the Sound of Success podcast. It's been a, a real pleasure catching up with you. Is there anything else that you've got coming up that you'd like to share with us? So a few animated films, and then um, I'm developing a TV show about billionaires, building bolt holes in New Zealand. Oh, wow. Which is another fascination of mine. Like Peter Thiel has bought this giant bit of land in New Zealand and is building this escape pod for when the geopolitical world collapses. Oh, God, he's horrible. Yeah, he's terrible. So I'm trying to write a comedy around. <laughs> well, listen, thanks for uh, thanks again for, for, for hanging out. It's, it's been great to catch up with you and uh, I look forward to seeing you out there on the road. Cool. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, mate. Sweet. The Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, sparknetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.